mercy, look at how the time goes. And welcome everybody to the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. I am your host, John Allen. And today I'll be speaking with Miss Lexi Corin. Hi, Lexi. Hello there. Thank you for having me. Well, I tell you, I saw the work you were doing. I saw um, your profile on a few uh, different uh, social media platforms, and I was hooked right away. You, you, and I, from there, I went into your website, and it, it just hooked me right away. You have a very interesting life. You have a very interesting path that you have taken through life, and that path puts you in a position where you can really uh, be an enormous, helpful factor in people's lives. Fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> that's very sweet. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I'm here for, I think. Um, using the, the experience that one has and, and then being able, having the privilege to be okay enough to to try and help other people as well. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's an interesting line of work. Now, you are a psychotherapist and mm-hmm. a sexologist. That's right. And that is a very interesting combination. Um, Talk about that. Talk (laughs) about that combination and how that helps you help people. Well, it it shouldn't really be uh, such a a big difference between the two because we've made the mistake in in society in general to separate uh, the mind or with the body. And so we are, my idea is to be able to integrate all different parts of yourself so for me it was only natural after the after the training as a psychotherapist to go deeper in and and look at us as sexual beings and uh, so i trained i continued my training as a sexologist later on okay so you began Mm. with psychotherapy then Mm. and you you studied in england correct i did i lived for about on and off for about 20 years in london and but I started off doing journalism. I, I started with media because my my focus has been on stories and, and human beings and the stories that we carry and and the stories that we pass on and how they stick to us. How some of those stories are are helpful stories, other stories not so helpful and and quite toxic. And and how do they impact our relationships? So I was turning away from journalism and then going towards more of an expressive uh, way of, of looking at stories. So then I, I went into the theater world and I trained as an actress. And while, while working as an actress, uh, I started working for this theater company that works with human rights. So they take real life stories of people suffering from human rights abuses and and they tour with it and they would do campaigns with like amnesty international and other organizations and and every story that i heard and then i met the people whose whose stories we were telling uh were so powerful and i thought i need more skills to deal with this so where should i go what should i do and that led me to training to take psychology and then uh to do my training as a psychotherapist and uh, integrative art psychotherapy as well. So you use different art forms, theater, movement, dance, music. Um, play, music, yes. Uh, and then as, a, as, a, as part of the medicine, not just talking therapy, because even though I'm trained to do that as, as well, I have a psychoanalytic background, 
But we find that a lot of the things that we sit with, we don't have a language for because ah, we've never talked about it. So interesting. what do we do? Yes. So what do we do? We just, we can, but with the arts, because we can play, right? You, you see children playing and then, and then it expands your imagination. And in your imagination is where a lot of your, your, your stories, they, they, they sit and they live and then they come out in your body or they come out as, it can come out as depression or, or depressive thoughts. And, and you, it's difficult to pinpoint why exactly things are happening if you don't have a language for it. So, 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 really helpful. Yeah. So, so these different art forms, you know, um, you know, working with clay or paint or, or mm. dance or theater, uh, music, you're saying then that people, um, you, you encourage your, your, what do we call them? Patients or clients? You I prefer clients. Clients. You, you, you encourage your clients to express themselves through these certain art forms. Okay. So, um, let's take me for example, um, maybe the worst example I can come up with, but let's take me for an example. If I sit and I write a song and I present, how would that work then? I would present that song to you as my therapist and then we would just talk about it, maybe dissect the lyrics and see what I'm trying, what I'm really trying to say or what trauma I'm trying to, 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 to clean and wash away. How, how does that actual process, that therapeutic process work? Hmm. Well, it varies. If you were to do a, a, a regular therapeutic setting in a, in, in a clinic or my private practice, you'd be invited first to, in the first few minutes to talk about what it is that you brought in and what emotions you're dealing with and, and the situation you're, you're, you're handling at the moment. And we, I would invite you to explore, to use any of the instruments that are already in the room or the other art materials that are already in the room. And then we go deep dive in for 20 minutes or so in there. And I get you to dialogue with the artwork because it's within that dialogue that you discover what's actually going on inside of you. And then to have me as a therapist sitting there as a witness, it creates a safe container for your emotions to be explored, to be accepted, because there is no, we have something that's called unconditional positive regard. We're not here to judge you. We're here to love you and um, unconditionally and within the therapeutic framework, of course. Uh, now say, if you bring in a song, then I would listen to it. I would I'd love to be, uh, to, to, to learn more about what it is about, what feelings it creates in you. So I would do, it, it would be a similar process. It's just that I would, I would dialogue with the music and I would ask, you know, if the music could speak or if the, if uh, it, will, it, it could have a life of its own, what would it say? And I would get you to dialogue with the music. And then we come to a, uh, to a not a conclusion because this is a work in progress. Therapy is, is a continuous process. You know, I um, I would imagine that a lot of people are walking around with, let's just call it issues, you know, trauma or, or uh, maybe some feelings of guilt of things that they've actually done themselves. And they're just kind of walking around with that. And that is a big load of baggage to carry through life. You know, I'm someone who believes that a challenge doesn't necessarily mean a debilitating problem. A challenge can be an opening to a new path that can lead to personal growth. And that's what interested me in the line of work that you're in, because it seems like you help people take those challenges and turn them into new opportunities. 
Mm, yes, yes. Uh, th- th- that's about resilience, isn't it? Because yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. Have you have you ever uh, read or heard about uh, a man's search for meaning, Viktor Frankl? I do know that name. I haven't read anything, but I've that rings some bells. I, mm-hmm. I've, I, I'm a, I'm a self. You know, I, I study, I put my focus on these kind of things that I'm interested in. And I want to say I've probably come across different articles where his, that name has been mentioned. Mm. So he was a, a psychiatrist and he, um, he was uh, during the, the Holocaust, he was uh, in, I, think, I believe he was in Auschwitz. And he was, he was looking at people and how they were surviving these horrible conditions. And, and he found that the people that who, who found meaning... Uh, were the ones who were building resilience. So we can say we can say that life perhaps is meaningless. Yeah. But it is the meaning that we put into it that makes it worth living. Interesting. Now, yeah. now, so so how how would one apply that then to their own situation? Well, I guess it can be applied by just seeking out a psychotherapist and dealing with the issue. For instance, that's a way to do it. But what do you what do you see? Uh, because as as I started to say earlier, um, I can imagine there's a lot of people walking around with issues, baggage, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, and they're not really doing anything about it. What do you think is the reason for that? Um, there, there seems to be more new age um, self help thinking. People are more aware of that these days. But I think still, my impression at least is that a lot of people don't really deal with their issues. Well, there's a lot of stigma around mental health issues, and uh, it's it's difficult when when we are as humans, we need to fit in to survive. It's the whole idea of, of the tribe, right? Yeah. So the more you are outside of what constitutes the norm, the more difficult it's going to be for you. And at the moment, the way the way we are, it's better. It's a little bit better now. People are talking more about mental health issues, but um, because of the uh, of the stigma, uh, you you carry the load on your own, and, and it becomes heavier. It becomes much heavier like that. So um, I've, I've you can't always, force that. Hmm? No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm I'm just thinking you can't force somebody to. No. Uh, to go and seek ther- uh, therapy or seek help, no. but you can be available. You can say, listen, I'm here. I'm here. I know this is hard. I can't imagine what you're going through, but I know this is hard and I'm here if you need to talk or I, I, if you want me to refer you to somebody else. I've always, I've always wondered why people uh, worry so much. I mean, the stigma thing is real. It's real. A lot of mm. people are embarrassed or, or even ashamed uh, mm. to admit that they have an issue and that they have to go to some sort of therapist. But mm. in the end, wh- I, I wonder why they would concern themselves with that stigma because there is the confidentiality between the therapist and the patient. Nobody has to know. I think that's important to get out there is that it is very confidential and no one has to know that you're seeing a therapist. Nobody yeah, has to absolutely. Know. It's a very absolutely. private it's, and personal thing. Mm, it is. It is. Um, but if you think about it, sometimes the, the person you have to admit it to and you have to stop hiding from is yourself. There we go. Yeah. And that's, that's a hard one because you build an identity uh, from the different stories you are telling about yourself, you know, I'm I'm a strong person and, and strong. I'm, I I I I don't know. I mean, it, what is strong? 
Is it that I don't I don't feel vulnerable because there is so much strength in vulnerability? Absolutely, so, because yeah. I would think that a vulnerable person uh, is going to take a lot more, to put it bluntly, a lot more crap from the world uh, because they're putting themselves out there. They're opening themselves up, so then they're going to be met with more adversity, uh, mm. more stigma. To say, stick, stick. Um, what's the English word for that? Uh, stigma. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get it. You get what I'm saying. Okay, yeah. They're going to be. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, most of the time, um, well, w when I'm at home with my wife and our two children, I speak only English. Uh, I have to relax and be myself. And then in the professional world out there, I speak just Norwegian. And sometimes it just crosses up and I find myself forgetting certain words in english that's terrible terrible i hear you i hear you it's totally normal though uh i you're trilingual I was, correct yes yeah yeah <laughs> i'm mixing it up all the time oh. there's a big multilingual soup going on in my head <laughs> oh the struggle is real the struggle is real <laughs> yeah <laughs> um now I forgot what I was talking about, but maybe we can maybe we can jump over to your background. Mm -hmm. uh, I want you know I want to get back to this whole therapeutic process, <clears throat> mm -hmm. but because I am um, halfway manic in my brain, let's just jump to the next thing. I think you have a fascinating, you have a very colorful background, if I can use that word. Oh, yeah. You are originally from Chile. Yes. Uh, your family came here. How old were you when they came to Norway? I was uh, seven or eight. Yeah. yeah. As refugees. Yes. Um, there are not many people who are so familiar with the social and political situation in Chile at that time. Mm -mm. What can you tell us about that? What is it that drove your family from Chile to Norway? So in uh, in the beginning of the 70s, there was a, a socialist president that was elected and he had a whole concept that, that he was going to create in Latin America that was very similar to Scandinavia, you know, the, the social reforms and education for all. Yeah. And, um, and there was a big dream that was being born out of the 68, you know, the movements that were happening all around the world back then. And uh, it was a creative time. There was there was theater. There was art. There was there was uh, hope. And part of that movement, what my parents were involved, and uh, they were politically active. My my dad was a trade unionist, mm -hmm. and so we were. I was born during a dictatorship. Yeah. Well, in 1973, actually. So, so the, 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 this happened in not, between 1970 and 1973. There was a coup, a coup d'état, uh, a military coup where people were imprisoned. There were concentration camps. There was torture. The and then people were being sent out, sent out into exile. Yeah. And persecutions and and the most horrible things you can imagine that was happening there. And my parents became part of the resistance movement resistance movement and, and things got very ugly yeah. from what i understand from my knowledge of that history there were mm -hmm. um the, you know there were squads of if you want to call them military people or, or, or police uh in the streets going into people's homes and relatives were just disappearing never yeah. to be seen or heard from again that's how that's how bad it was yeah, yeah it was terrible i mean i have memories from i was very young but i have very, very clear memories of, of, you know, my uncle was taken and, yeah. and having to go and look for him uh, with my mom through uh, the detention center, see if we could find him. And, uh, and oh, what I can remember is those boots, you know, the green boots uh, yeah. and the fear, but you couldn't show fear. 
because you know that you start learning very early on what you need to do to survive sure sure and and so yeah so this that's a lot of that and then eventually it got really really bad because i i was i was started school and we i was followed to school by the secret police and they were they were coming up to me and saying you know we know your parents and just uh, and there were cars every night outside our house and i would just look wow. through the window and they would be sitting there new people different people but they'd be sitting there and just letting us know that we were being watched or the phone would ring and and i remember answering the phone and they would be like just breathing on the other side and nobody was answering so it was like constant terror so it was a constant press of of terror and and, and intimidation um yeah and that says a lot that they would actually go to such a low level that they're actually going to involve a child in their mm -hmm. terroristic efforts. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Disgusting. Oh, yeah. I mean, Just, uh, they had no, um, I mean, the, the, the sadistic, uh, terrible fascist regime. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, so eventually it got, it just got worse and worse and, um, and we were in a, in a space of a, a less than a month. Suddenly we, we weren't there anymore and uh, we had to go. I took a backpack, but not a backpack, but a little, little rucksack mm. uh, with my favorite teddy, uh, my diary. I was told to just write all your feelings. That's what my mom said. Just, we're going to go on a journey now. Just write all your feelings now. And, and then we ended up here. We ended up in Norway on an island on the west coast of Norway. It was very strange. Huge contrast. I can I can only imagine, you know, I made that move of my own free will. Well, that can be debated. My wife, <laughs> she's a tough, tough little uh, northern Norwegian woman. But, but for the most part, I came here of my own choice. Uh, as an adult, I was in my early 30s when I came here. And for me, as an adult, as with, you know, with my educated and experienced background, it was tough enough. Mm. I can't even begin to imagine how a child and with all of the social work that i've done uh, up through the years here in norway that is something i just can't get my head around how a child experiences and deals with situations like that i mean their whole mm. world is just and they don't know what's going on you didn't understand mm. all this your your whole world mm. was just turned upside down mm. that's traumatic yeah. that's traumatic within itself oh absolutely it is uh but at the same time, uh, uh, I guess the, the my parents would, would look at us or talk to me about it as I'm mean, going to an adventure and we're going to be safe here. And and my priority was to be with my parents. You know, that's what you what you want when you as a child. Sure, like, sure. Because before I, I sometimes my parents wouldn't come home and I'd be terrified. You know, the, that terror kind of sits in your body and it, it's still, still there. Well, it's called PTSD, is it not? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So just knowing that you'll be somewhere where your parents will be there. Well, it sounds uh, like your parents tackled this in a good way uh, for your benefit. Uh, yeah. I truly believe, my experience has been that, I don't want to say that the parents can always shield their children from 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 terror or trauma or the you know the harsh realities of life but the parents reaction to those incidences of trauma and fear their the parent the parental reaction very, to a large degree dictates the child's reaction mm. and the child's retention of you know how that child will remember that traumatic event Yes, it does have a, a huge effect, but there's also the, the other aspect, which is the transgenerational trauma 
So the way yes. that the parents uh, deal with trauma also says a lot about what the, their parents did. And so exactly my point. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, it's it's hereditary. In other words, it's mm. a generational thing. You can pass down trauma and mm. terror and 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 pain. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's an educational process, I would think. And, and, and here we go. Now I can tie it back to, to what we were talking about before. It's an educational process. If that adult is aware of, you know, you don't, not necessarily that they have to go to school and become a psychotherapist, but if they're just aware that there is such a thing as mental trauma and that it can blanket their entire life. Hmm. Uh, and that awareness then will lead to hopefully understanding and by shielding themselves from it or educating themselves in that whole issue that has to do with trauma, hopefully they're shielding their children from a certain amount of trauma. Well, there's something that can be done if, if you have children when one, and also when you're identifying or right now I am in a trauma response or right now this I'm reacting in this way. I'm going into rage or I'm going into freeze mode or whatever, whatever your mode of, of, of coping is. And is that then, what you mean by, is that what you mean by a trauma response? Yeah. So the, say, it, say something happened, the, 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 the child falls and, and you go into, Oh my God, like a bit of a, a histrionic uh, response to it. Um, it could be a trauma response. It could be the way you, you, you in, in you it's much bigger than it actually is so when you recognize that you are responding that that's been activated in you yes. and uh, instead of passing it on and you've already done it and you've already said oh my god you've fallen oh no and then you can go over and you can repair yeah that's the difference the repairing uh, a repairing is also a, a form of reparenting because you're uh, reparenting yourself in the action. Well, the words are very similar. So, of course, mm. there must be some sort of connection. Yeah. Mm. Repair and reparent. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So, so it can be as, as simple as, you know, I, I think that was a good uh, analogy that you used. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a child trips and falls, you know, will, does the parent freak out mm -hmm. to say it in good uh, American English? Do they freak out? Oh my gosh, my poor baby. Or do they treat the situation with the concern that it warrants, which could mm -hmm. be so simple as, oh, wow, you fell. You okay? Good. Okay. And then you move on. Yeah. Uh huh. Because I that that simple response right there is quite telling of the parental-child relationship. You know, you have this uh, concept of helicopter parents, parents who just do everything and just pave the way for a a life of uh, uh, of zero worries for their children. There's, of course, we want our children to have their lives be as problem-free as possible. But my desire to teach my children is greater than that. And that means there's some problems that they're just going to have to go through. And mm. then I want to be there to help them through it. I don't want to remove all of the problems. Mm. Um, That's that really very it's healthy. It sounds healthy because, uh, because life, life goes on and it does. Yeah. And you can be stuck in child mode forever. If you're going to be protected at all times, you need to, that's how where growth comes from as well. And maturity comes from, facing these challenges. So psychotherapy can then uh, be a tool to help us redo our trauma response. Is that a safe well, thing to say? You can say, I, I'd like, I like to use this other quote. Uh, it's called, uh, 
what is it? It's restoring the ability to play. That's what my job. I'm sorry, rest- restoring the ability to play. To play. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's my that's my job. That's the essence of my job. Whether it's as a psychotherapist or a sexologist, uh, my job is to help people restore their ability to play because we forget we forget to play. We're so we become so busy with worries and responsibilities, and then we and we have all these shields to protect us from from pain. That in between all of that playfulness disappears. And once you connect with the playfulness and your creativity, you start tapping into this other source that is going to give you so much freedom and, mm-hmm. yeah, joy. Playfulness and creativity. Mm-hmm. I like to think, you know, I have a bad shoulder, so I can't pat myself on the back physically, but I'm going to do it with words. Playfulness and creativity. Mm-hmm. I love um, I love writing, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's writing new material for my stand-up uh, routine, uh, I like to make my wife and kids laugh. And then that creativity, the music, you know, that I like to create. Um, I think that those are two things that have been key to my mental health. Uh, two things that have been key to my, and I call it a recovery process since my son passed. You know, I, um, I've shared that with my listeners before. My son died in November of 2019 of a heroin overdose. Mm. Terrible, horrible thing. And, and, I, and I still don't know how to deal with that, but I think I'm dealing with it properly by putting a new focus on that playfulness and creativity. Mm. Uh, what does my psychotherapist friend say? I mean, is that a good way to handle a situation like that you know i i don't i don't know how to who who knows how to deal with losing a child no one knows how to how, to, how exactly. to deal with that but i think that me putting some effort into that creative side of me is is mm-hmm. helping in some way i feel mm-hmm. i feel better when i'm doing it at yeah. Least. yeah and that should be like that should be your your guiding your guiding post right this feels better in a in a in a horrible situation like that. I mean, there's no bigger pain than losing your child. And it's easy uh, to forget when something like that mm-hmm. happens, not just losing a child, but any major trauma, it's so easy to mm-hmm. forget how to make yourself feel better because mm-hmm. we do have the tools, do we not? Everyone has the tools yeah. to help themselves, but sometimes we forget how to use them. Mm-hmm. So, so is, that, is, that, is that a big part of your job then, helping us see that we do have the power? Yes, absolutely. I mean, what what you're doing, the the, the harnessing your, your creative, uh, the creative juices that I, I like to call it, uh, it's it's a great medicine. Uh, it and is, especially during grief. And if we think, if we take it into a sort of in a, more of the collective at the moment, right now the world is going through some sort of grief. It's going through an, a, both an, an anticipatory grief because mm-hmm. we had this. We had all these plans and things we would do, and and then suddenly they're not. We don't know if it's possible anymore. There's uncertainty. There's constant uncertainty. We don't know how long this is going to last. Our lives are changing, and 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 it can you know it can trigger all kinds of feelings. Feelings similar to grief, the 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 death, the parting of of the life you thought you would have. Um, I see. I see. Yeah. So uh, in, in those terms, being able to tap into creativity is a great resource. Uh, uh, yeah. I would imagine you are seeing um, 
a more demand for your services now in these times of isolation and quarantine? Is that a fair assumption for me to make that you're... Well, yes, there is a lot of... Uh, right now, actually, there's a new app that's been... Uh, I'm part of this this uh, new app that's been launched, and it has uh, uh, therapists and doctors and uh, healers. It's a bit of... It's got an alternative, uh, more of a holistic approach to it. So you, you have... Uh -huh. On the, spec on the spectrum from doctors and very scientific uh, helpers to healers and, and other types of holistic practitioners. And I am the psychotherapist, sexologist in in there providing my services as well. What's and, that and called? It's called w, uh, uh, w Call. So it's this man, I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, he's called Michael uh, Winger. Mike, Mikael Winger in Norwegian, mm -hmm. Michael Winger yeah. <laughs> with a W. Uh, and uh, he's uh, he's been working really tirelessly to create this service. And and it's going to, it's been launched in Norway, but I think the, the, the purpose of it is to be going global. So he's got a, a few practitioners there who are multilingual. Interesting. Uh, Michael, Michael, Michael Winger, W-I-N-G-E-R. Okay. Yes. Interesting. So uh, you're so you're in that. So through that app, people can connect with you, and then yeah, and then, video, video conference and a video call, and but also it is possible to connect directly uh, as well. And I'll give you the details later. Uh, what I mostly the the clients that I get are let me let me just say let me just say please please give me those details when we're finished here and yeah. I'll I'll post that uh, mm -hmm. on my social media because I think that that is a fantastic tool uh, that. You know, again, a lot of people are so worried about the stigma of of, of being treated for mental issues. Um, mm. uh, and I want to try and help remove that stigma. So to be able to post some information that people can use. Yeah, yeah please. Mm. Make, let's make sure that you give me that information afterwards. Yeah. Great. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, the, most of the, the clients I get here in Norway have this this dual background or you know like they come from other places and then either they grew up here or, or they married into a norwegian family uh -huh. and so having to deal with these different cultures in in one space uh and finding somebody who can understand that that point of view uh, because it is, is a different it is a different point of view it comes yeah. with a completely different set of experiences yeah uh, yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. We're a special group of people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> let, me, let me go back to that app. I want to make sure I have this right. The app is called W-C-A-L-L. W-Call. Yeah, W-Call. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, now, your credentials, you are not just a psychotherapist, but a sexologist. That's right. What does a sexologist do? The sexologist looks at uh, your sexual life, basically, and sexual questions around sexuality and desire and fantasy, and also uh, I'm I'm not a clinical psycho uh, sexologist. A clinical sexologist would would look into um, issues such as vulvodynia and uh, and erectile dysfunction. I can still work with that. I can still work with that, but my, my focus is on the relational aspect. 
because I'm, I'm merging it with psychotherapy. I'm looking at the relational aspects of what's your relationship with your body, with sexuality, and how does that, how that does your mind and your stories affect the way that you uh, experience your sexuality and relate to other people sexually. So, so what's a typical client then that needs help from Lexi, the sexologist? Mm. What kind of mm. things are they trying to deal mm. with? Oh, there's so many. Uh, I get a lot of couples, uh, but also single, and people with, with uh, pe couples that, for instance, have um, um, not having sex anymore. And they're wondering why. And, and they're on the brink of breaking up because of that. And then well, why they do, come to sessions. Yeah, sorry? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But mm -hmm. so, so on, on that subject alone, uh, mm -hmm. that, that, is an that is an issue. Uh, I always wonder mm -hmm. how many how many stand-up comedians actually have that problem because that is uh, we as stand-up comedians we have a tendency to joke about the things that concern us and there's a lot of guys and girls out there joking about their own sex life so I don't know I'm kind of halfway joking halfway serious but I would imagine mm -hmm. that there are quite a few couples of a certain age and up over and maybe even younger who have problems with that. What is it that leads a couple who otherwise are still in love with each other, but what makes that sexual connection stop? Hmm. What do you see? Well, there are many, many, many factors. But um, the, the thing about, if you think about long-term relationships, the, the thing that is at a crossroads here is the idea of, it's the, it's the concept of safety uh, versus adventure. Safety so versus adventure. Versus adventure, yeah. So when we are, if you are in a long-term relationship, you are basically in a safe, hopefully, in a safe uh, place. Yeah, monogamy safety, and yeah, and mm -hmm. yeah. So when safety becomes, uh, safety can quickly become boring. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and to ignite passion, you need a you need a sense of adventure. So how do you put that sense of adventure within a safe context so that you and, can reignite? And that was my question, yeah, because that's a slippery slope right there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's been some Hollywood movies written about that couple who <laughs> opens the doors to something that's not quite so safe. They're looking for a little bit of excitement, and then it ends up ruining the marriage. Uh, you know, I'm talking about like people bringing in a third partner into mm -hmm. this thing, and they think it's something they agree on, and then all of a sudden... There's trouble because of it. Yeah. So I'm pouring a little bit of mate while I'm talking to you. It's my, my tea, my hot tea drink. Hey, I have while, a, we're spilling, while we're spilling the tea here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Got to yeah. keep ourselves moisturized here. <laughs> yeah. Or not so, moisturized, well, hydrated. Well, hydrated is the word. Both. See, yeah, well, both. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me get back to your, your, uh, your, your question here. Um, it's... There are so many ways to love and there are so many ways to express your sexuality and we take very little time to uh, go in and explore, first of all, our own sexuality individually and then to find a language to communicate that. This because we don't have that, and most of us Communi communicate to the education. Communicate it to your partner is what you're saying. Yes. Right? Because yeah. that that's a big issue. I think that uh, I don't know. It, it seems that it's most often in a, in a in a couple's uh, in a traditional um, marriage, male and female couple. It's it seems that it is the man who is most often dissatisfied with the sexual relationship, and you know that is what it is. But it seems to be dealt with very seldom 
And that is due to a lack of communication. Is that a good assessment of, of it? I think it's um, yes and no. There's a, there's a bit of a myth there that, oh. uh, that women, women are fine with not having sex and all of that. Okay. If you, there's, there's been some studies done uh, where uh, they showed that women, lesbian women are the ones that are having more orgasms. 86% of lesbian women have orgasms and they have them all the time. So there's the desire is there. Heterosexual women are the women that fall the last ones. They're, they're at, the, at the very bottom. There, there is no, there are no orgasms. There is, and then, and then you kind of start losing desire. But if you think of, think about uh, us as we have a, um, a gas pedal and then and we have a, like an on and off button. So if you can put information inside, what does, turn you on what is what are the things that you need to be turned on and then in a different box have a look at what are the things that turn you off and then you have your partner do the same thing and then you can put them together and contextualize it so an example i think i, I read this in a i can't quote the book right now because i don't remember who wrote it but there was an example of uh, a couple that were, they were having sex every night, every night, like nine o'clock. It was just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Fantastic. Boom. So they had a and schedule every night, nine o'clock, yeah, we're doing like, this. It's okay. happening. And it was great. <laughs> and both loved it. And yeah. then, uh, and, and the woman fell pregnant and then they had a baby and then baby came and, and the, and the partner, the male partner is, uh, well, it's nine o'clock. Let's go. She's like, uh, what? <laughs> no. No. Yeah. So, so he's like, well, this is what we used to. So why is it not happening? And then he starts doubting himself. Oh, she doesn't want to. She doesn't want me. La la la. But it's because it's taken out of context. You need to look at the context. How, how, what do you need in order to feel desired and loved, and and all of those things? It's an exploration. You basically need to go and explore, find out, find a language for it, and communicate it in in such a loving way. And, and also be listening on the other side to be able to accept. I keep thinking coming. of that word. Yeah, I keep thinking of that word communication that, that mm -hmm. you know, these issues are going to come up in a majority of relationships, whether they're uh, homosexual relationships or heterosexual relationships. You know, you have to communicate. You have to talk about what you want, what you don't want, what you need. Uh, hmm. You have to ask the other person those exact same things. Yes. And when there's a breakdown in communication, there's going to be a breakdown in the relationship, I would assume. Yes. Um, what is it What is it that makes people, I don't know, afraid or, or unaware of the necess necessity of communication in a relationship? Uh, Isn't that what it is? Isn't that the main mm -hmm. issue here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the, the main thing is not everyone knows themselves. Not everyone. Uh, there's a lot of, like, for instance, women, a lot of women who do not know how their bodies function, how many types of orgasms one can have and what are the pleasure points, because who's talking about it? What we learn through, say, for instance, through media or social media, the kids today, it's what they're learning, they're learning through porn and yeah. porn is not real. It's not, it's not, uh, uh, oh, there you go, let's penetrate and, and then the, the woman will have a, a multiple orgasms and be screaming and squirting all over the place. It doesn't happen like that. It doesn't work like that. So uh, there's a whole uh, generation today that that's what they're growing up with. And yeah. they don't have anything to counter that with. So that's, that's the mental mm. picture they have of what sex is about. And I, that, that scares me for their sexual future. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It is scary. You're going to have when a bunch of change. women. You're going to have mm-hmm. a bunch of women who are expected to perform like that. And you're going to have a bunch of men who think that that is the reality of sex. And that's not yes. a good, it's not, that doesn't create a good picture of the future. It's performative sex instead of connective sex. And the idea is to create connection. If you're going to have a, a, a real beautiful experience of, of your body and, 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 and giving yourself to another human being, then, then you need to know what you like and what you don't like. You need to know your limits and boundaries and all of that. That's another aspect of it. Consent. Because if you, if you, if you are performing sex and not actually engaging in it as a, as a whole connected human being and just performing it because it's something you saw in a porno, then, then you won't know about consent. You have no idea. And, and this is a problem. This is a very big problem. It's kind of scary. Um, Mm -hmm. Now you, you, you said a few minutes back, you said that uh, lesbian women are having more orgasms uh, women in lesbian relationships and and, mm. and and homosexual relationships are having more orgasms than women in heterosexual relationships. Mm. Now that is that a big uh, is that a big sign of a character flaw in men? <laughs> I think it's or, a combination. Well, okay, talk about that combination. What what do you think it is? Because to me, it says, "Uh oh, men, you better step up your game." Whether that's whether that game is in performance or whether that game is in understanding what a woman wants, I don't know. What what do you think is the reason for that? It's a first of all, it's a lack of language. If we don't have a language to express our sexuality, how are we going to communicate it? Uh, the other thing is is what we were talking about before. If you don't know yourself, how are you going to communicate that to your partner? Yeah. If um, you don't know what you want, how are you going to know what you want? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and that's why I encourage everyone to masturbate and find find the things that turn you on and, and explore with fantasies. And, there, there's, and, there's, uh, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. We'll come back to uh, that. I have a question um, about masturbation. Okay, well, yeah, we'll, we'll get come back to that. We'll come back to that. Um, and the other thing is, um, so we're talking about, oh, sorry, I just lost my... <laughs> I'm sorry. No. Ter- terrible podcast host interrupting a guest. No. <laughs> Okay, it's okay. We'll come back. We'll come back to it. Um, so communication and yes, also orgasms and what happens with uh, uh, why are heterosexual women not having enough orgasms? Yeah. Uh, and and the other thing is a lot of uh, heterosexual women are in, in monogamous relationships and and it, it often means like traditional gender roles uh, are often part of monogamous relationships and that means that women have a lot to carry they're stressed and stress is the the biggest turnoff absolutely Uh, yeah so if you know if they're being cleaning and all day and then they're doing this job here and they're multitasking and they're coming back and then they're like oh i have to please my man now yeah it it, it turns into something that whole thing about the women has to please you know the guy comes home and he takes off his overcoat and he sits in his chair and he opens a newspaper Mm -hmm. and barely says hi to the wife Uh and kids he's just waiting for dinner to be served and then after that dinner the kids go to bed and now the man wants sex Mm -hmm. where has the connection been leading up to his desire for sex there's been very little communication there hasn't been Mm -hmm. any sharing of the daily tasks uh, within the household so I would Mm -hmm. uh, you know if if I look back to that traditional you know if you go back to the 50s maybe when Mm -hmm. the women were staying at home and they're doing all this work I don't see how they would have the energy (laughs) to 
to to to be able to perform you know forget about the desire how do they have the energy to be able to perform sexually so that tr so-called traditional household division of of tasks um oh. i don't see how that's conducive to a good sexual relationship it's not and then you see infidelity is it becomes part of it it's, it's part of i mean many cultures like in france you're almost expected to have a have a lover, an extra yeah, lover. that blows my mind. That's so strange. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, but it just means that we are sexual beings and, and we want to get it one way or another. I guess, uh, I guess I say it's strange in the sense that, well, I, you know, there, there are different cultures and there are different ways of looking at these things. But I would think that if, or I would hope rather that if you're in a relationship and you're not getting what you want sexually, that you would be able to open your mouth and talk about it and find a solution before you just assume that that solution is going outside the relationship and finding somebody to mm. satisfy that part of you. Yeah, but then that, this is where we get stuck in our stories. And 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 part of part of my job is to kind of unravel that and figure out what what's underneath. What's the message? What's the the, the tagline to your story? Because if you're afraid of being rejected or abandoned, you're going to do anything for for that uh, so that other person person doesn't leave you and and that means uh, uh, resigning on your own self and your own desires so, so i'll give up anything just so that you are happy and you lose yourself in that process yeah it's yeah I, I guess it goes all the way back to what we said you know starting out is is getting to the root of your own issues getting to mm. the root of your own challenges and doing something about it all that's going to do is enrich your life i mean there might be a period or several periods where you feel maybe worse than you felt before you started trying to deal with these issues but that's part of the process yes you have to tolerate yes. a little bit more pain and a little bit more uncertainty in order to turn that into something that can make you grow yeah it it, it feels bad until it gets better it, it, you, you always go a little it, bit yeah. yeah it does because it, it's like you have this wound and it, it might be infected but when you start to disinfect it it hurts yeah, yeah. it eventually starts healing so oh. uh, when you can look at the scar and it doesn't hurt anymore then you know you've healed are there any well how do i frame this question uh what are your experiences when it comes to clients misunderstanding your role as a sexologist um mm, yeah, I see yes. you're, you're, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell me about that well you, you need to create uh, as a sexologist or as a therapist you need to create uh real clear boundaries this is a therapeutic space and we're here to talk i am not here to touch you you are not here to touch me uh and if um they come with, uh, yeah, uh, if they come with some inappropriate things, like How much trying that, to ask me out and but, stuff like that, I would put it back, give it back to them, saying, so why is it important for you to ask me out? Yeah. Well, how much of that would you tolerate as a therapist before you just cut off your, the, 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 the therapeutic relationship with that client and just send them on their way? How much, you know, because these people are coming to you possibly mm -hmm. with some baggage, possibly with something mm -hmm. that they need to work out and whatever it is that they need to work out might lead them to not quite understand your borders and limitations as a therapist. So how mm -hmm. much do you tolerate from them 
uh, asking you out or asking you to touch them? Or do you tolerate that? I don't no, know. I'm, no, no, no. I don't tolerate any. So, so as soon as they cross touch. those. No, I'm not saying that you would tolerate touching no, them, but tolerate them no. asking or expecting or making oh. an issue out of it. Of no, course, we, you don't tolerate mm. that. I'm sorry. Don't misunderstand. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. To, you, you'll never touch uh. them. But but mm -hmm. if you have that client who consistently, I, I guess, how pushy does a client have to be in before you tell them to just go away and, and they're going to have to find some other place to get help? Well, there are, there are two ways. Uh, the first one is when they make the initial call, you sort of, uh, I've, I've been doing this for 12 years. So you, you have a, you have an inkling of yeah. what kind of call this is. Maybe in the um, way they formulate their whole problem or. Yeah. 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 You have an inkling. So, but you do set the boundaries immediately. You tell them what, how, how this works and, and how we will work. And, and then you sign a contract. You sign a contract? Uh, yeah, you sign a contract, uh -huh. therapeutic contract. Yes. Interesting. Uh, be because it's, it's a work. We work together. Sure. We work together for, for, for their well-being. And if, if uh, things like that are going to happen, then that's not part of the contract. It's not part of, of their well-being. And I have to refer them to somebody else. But also, there's something called the erotic transference that we work with in, well, in a psychoanalytic perspective erotic is, transference yes the erotic okay. transference and that is something that will come up will come up because we what, what is that it's um so you're in a room uh with with a client and the client will bring in all their stories and all the people and all their triggers and everything and they will and therapeutic space is a container where you you can start depositing all of those ghosts and and, and uh, yeah all of that the baggage that you're you're taking with you and so we we start to dismantle and take with and polish some of them. Some of them we reintegrate, the other ones we discard. And uh, but it all happens on a subconscious level. Yeah. So the therapist needs to be aware of that that it's going to happen. So I can be on the on the other side and I can be feeling all these strange things, and I need to be able to to understand whether it's my own stuff or the client stuff. But once I understand, and this is this takes training to do. But once you understand it's the client stuff, you can safely take it back and present it. It's like I'm I'm sensing this and that. Uh, could it be right that this belongs to you, and the, the the client might be ready to take it back, or just might be just able to for you to hold it uh, further. And this could be anything. But also later on in the in the therapeutic relationship the erotic is also going to be part of that so they might have had a um, uh, a nanny or a, a mother or somebody that i remind them of okay or somebody that they they fell in love with uh -huh. that i remind them of and they will they will have a, a platonic uh, uh what you call it, uh, in Norwegian. Uh, uh, yeah, to platonic, pull it up, Yeah, yeah, platonic relationship. Plat a crush, that, yeah. A yeah, crush. a platonic crush on the therapist. I mean, that happens a lot. Not just, not to me, but I mean, in general, it, it's quite, it's, I would say, quite natural for a, uh, for a client to have a little crush on their, on their therapist. And it's not my job to destroy that for them. It's no. my job to hold it for them, hold those feelings and what they represent in a very, very humble and honoring way. We have to honor those feelings so that they can take them back when they're ready because this all projection is basically 
we're all mirrors in a way. Yeah. So we just, we, we project our, our stuff, the stuff that we can't hold for ourselves. We just, okay, you hold this. I have a crying baby here. You, you take the baby, you hold the baby yeah. until I'm ready. So I'm, my job is to hold that baby until the baby can learn how to play. Is, is there some sort of separation of the erotic or the sensual from the sexual or I mean, if, if, if you're, if you're in a session or you have a client and they have these issues that are based on, 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 for example, negative sexual experiences up through their life. Mm -hmm. um, how, how, how do you, help them to turn that negative experience into something that will open them up for possibly being able to have a positive sexual experience. In other words, is there some, is there, is there a difference between eroticism and sex? Is there something, is, is there, it, it just seems like there's, there's a, there's a cerebral approach to sex, to the sexual that a lot yeah. of people don't, think of. i don't think about that sex is sex but there is a thought process there's a cerebral process mm -hmm. uh, i like to think of, of um this of, of fantastic american poets audrey audrey lord uh she was brilliant brilliant woman and she wrote uh, the uh, the the uses of the erotic power she wrote an essay called Sister, uh, a collection of essays called Sister Outsider. And in that, she, she wrote about the uses of the erotic power. And, and she talks about how, uh, as a society, what we've done is that we've separated the erotic. I mean, we, we, we've, di we've done a division where sex has become pornographic. And we've that's what the I was getting out. at. I'm, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a good way of saying exactly mm. what I meant. In mm. other words, there's something beautiful and there's something that society calls filthy about yeah. sex there's two sides to it mm. and then and then it, it also links back to what we were talking about before when sex becomes performative it's, it's not a part of who we are anymore it's just part of what, something we do and and while the erotic is something that we are we all are in one way or another within the spectrum from from asexuality to hypersexual i mean we're all we have the because eroticism what it really is is vitality and vitality is creativity. So it's all, if we can connect to all that source, it, we can have a, 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 an erotic experience in, in our daily life just by being creative. But uh, not everything is, oh, it's so difficult to, to go into it because what well, we have been trained so hard to, to be, to be uh, performative, we have to be sexy, and uh, we have to perform this and do all these positions, and and we think that oh, sex is supposed to be heteronormative. There's a, there's a penis in a vagina, and then the, the the penis penetrates the vagina, and then that's it. But that excludes everyone else and everything else, <laughs> yeah, and. Yeah. And then what about touch? What about those the, the, the contact that you make with someone? What about those deep conversations? What about the food that you taste? Well, the conversations. I, I was I, there's there's a verbal aspect to to uh, sexuality and eroticism that people sometimes can be a little bit reluctant to explore. Mm -hmm. um, you had a really cool and interesting Instagram um, story post here mm -hmm. a couple of days ago. Mm -hmm. um, it was jaw droppingly interesting. I guess people could hear that and think on the surface that it's jaw droppingly sexy. 
but there is a jaw-droppingly intelligence to it when you briefly explained what it was you were actually doing on that post. I thought it was fascinating. Can you talk about that? Mm. So I'm, I'm exploring a little bit the concept of uh, scopophilia. It's the idea of uh, who is watching, who is who is watching what we're doing? What what vision is it that we are? What gaze is it that we we possess? And uh, and you talk a lot about. I mean, we talk a lot. Feminist. I'm a feminist, so we talk a lot about male gaze, and especially the the white heterosexual middle class gaze, and that everyone else works around and adapts to it and that becomes the norm in other words the viewpoint the main and most important viewpoint uh uh for society is from the viewpoint or from the vantage point of a white heterosexual male yes yes so what do we do if we take that gaze away what do we do and uh and what i uh i wanted to do with this little project uh is to <laughs> is to take another view with uh, I'm doing mundane things okay, and I need to kind of explain the post the, the different series of posts so I, I do mundane things like um, hoovering or um, plucking some of my hairs in my eyebrows and uh -huh. that, that sort of really what wouldn't be seen as sexy uh, according to those standards you know according to the, the white heterosexual male gaze but but you hear you have a voiceover, and the voiceover is it's uh, the female fantasy. It's the fantasy of this woman who wants to be, who wants to be both active and wants to be passive, which wants to explore things with with a, a potential partner, and and it's very um, detailed. The, the 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 sexual fantasies that she's got going through are very detailed. But she's doing completely mundane things. So it kind of distorts the image of this is what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be pouting and be super sexy and 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 for the pleasure of the male of the, of the white male gaze. While um, while she's doing the opposite. But it somehow still is hot. So I've I've had lots of people people uh, writing to me uh, and going, oh my God, that was saucy. I And women, you know, like, oh my God, yes, that's exactly what goes in my mind when I'm chopping onions, you know? <laughs> yeah, because in the video, yeah, that way. <laughs> yeah, because in the video you were, um, was it onions you were, you were cutting? Uh, garlic, I garlic, think, garlic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and then on top of that, you had this quite descriptive audio of you saying mm -hmm. basically what, the, the the character uh, yeah. had going through her mind about yeah. a sexual fantasy or some sexual thoughts, yes. uh, erotic erotic thoughts or an erotic fantasy, and it was yeah. there was something that I that struck me as extremely uh, artistic mm -hmm. in the way you did that, and that is actually that was the tide turner. That's when I knew I had to get you <laughs> on this podcast because it was such a combination of something that was very cerebral something mm -hmm. that was very almost almost scientific you know if we look at if we look at psychotherapy and and uh and sexology as a scientific field uh, mm -hmm. but you 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 covered it you blanketed it with an art very artistic uh presentation mm -hmm. which which fascinated me so i i give you a, th a virtual thumbs up on that i mean that was it was 
and, and I, to yeah. me that to me that says a lot about your capability or your 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 vantage point as a therapist that it might be you know i don't want to say it's not traditional because i don't know what is traditional within your field but it was at least very interesting and it told me that you think a little bit differently uh from what a lot of men think that women think about eroticism and sexuality yes and that's kind of the point it's yep. it's, it's yep. Going out there and and creating a platform, and uh, I'm doing this together with two other women who are fantastic, really, really uh, incredible women, creative and and intelligent uh, poets and theater people and uh, economists. I mean, they're they're amazing women, and and because of we we are call ourselves las pañuelas, uh, it's a it's a Latin American term, mm-hmm. um, and. And the thing is that these incredible women, there's so many incredible people, not just women, people out there who have so many resources but don't fall within the norm. The norm. So you come outside and you have to do other types of jobs. You, the resources are not being used properly uh, because you don't fall, fall within the norm. So it, to, to answer your question about being different, a different kind of psychotherapists and sexologists, Yes, I am different in that way because I I have to. There's no, there's my I'm I'm Latin American. I am not the, the the regular Nordic person. I yeah. I have experiences from other cultures, and uh, my my experience is always going to be different to the norm. So I might as well go all out there and create spaces for other people who are also to also identify as other. Well, there's a certain yeah. amount of fearlessness that you have to have in order to do that. Uh, Norway is not the most accepting of otherness. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, I, and 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 I I I love living here. You know, everything is going mm-hmm. fine. But one reality is is that they don't accept the so-called other. Um, mm-hmm. Has that affected you as a therapist in any way? Uh, not as a therapist. Uh, I think there's room for me here because. Uh, because there are many of us. There are yes. many who are other. Yes. Uh, so there's, there's definitely room for me. And there are a lot of the, the clients that I get, that they've been looking for somebody to speak to, say, in Spanish or in English. Uh, and, and, and they haven't been able to, to meet a, a therapist before that who could understand them from this point, from this perspective, who would actually understand them. I see. You know, there's, there's a difference here because you can, yeah, you can have you can have uh, an understanding for the situation, like a general understanding of, oh yeah, this is to be an outsider must be difficult, but to have the lived experience. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole different understanding and, 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 and uh, it's a whole other ball game. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So in that way, yes, but it did affect me. It did affect me growing up here to be different. That, that really did something. (laughs) Tell tell me about the journey. Tell me about that. Well, you know Jante Loven? Jante yeah. How do we explain that to the non-Norwegian speakers? The, the Jante Loven, the, the law of Jante, uh, it, it, it's, it has its roots in, a, in an old story, but it is actually, you know, it's an old story fairy tale type of thing, but it actually is quite real here in Norway. Mm-hmm. The, law of, the law of Jante says that you should not 
pride yourself in being different. You should follow the norm. Don't stick your head out there. Don't be more than the others around you. Don't think that you're more than the others around you. That's basically the, the law of Janta or Janteloven as it's called in Norwegian. So yeah, you yeah. Were, yeah you grew up in that. Yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah, don't think you're anyone. Don't think you're better than anyone. You don't laugh at us. Don't you know all these all these rules that are supposed to be literary rules, but they were taking as part of a, a criticism to society. And it wasn't just Norway, but it was all all of Scandinavia. All of Scandinavia, yeah. And uh, so it would it would affect. Uh, you know, I, I would have teachers who would say to me, "Oh, you don't want to be Norwegian." Like, what does that mean? What does that mean? I don't understand you. Or uh, if, you know, if I, I, I remember, I, I left quite early. So when I finished school, I moved to London. And then I did a, I did some, a couple, a year in, in France, in Paris. And I came back to my hometown in, in the West Coast. And I met my teacher again from primary school. He's like, where are you, where are you now? Uh, oh, I'm in Paris. And she's like, oh, you never wanted to be Norwegian. You wow. wouldn't let me. You wouldn't let me because I didn't fit in. <laughs> to me, that's, you know, it's, I, I see some humor in that. Um, yeah. I, I do, you know, I, and, I, and I go against that ruthlessly in my stand-up routine. Mm-hmm. So I, I can laugh about it, but I think there is a certain ugliness to that, to, to picture a immigrant or a refugee child who comes to Norway and then quite often they're being told that because they are different, well, then that means, well, you must not want to be Norwegian. I wonder what that does to the psyche of a small child when it comes to their feelings of acceptance. Mm. If you feel like you're not being accepted for who you are by the greater society as a small child, yeah. Uh, and you're constantly being bombarded by that uh, throughout your childhood. I wonder what that does to people as adults. Mm. Well, it, it it depends on who you have around you as well. Because you, if you have nurturing, everything that happens to you as a, as a as a child will have an impact, and some bigger than other. Uh, but also, you internalize it; it becomes your inner voice. So you have an inner critic yeah. and an inner nurturer. So if you had any great people around you that become your inner nurturer, nurturers, then that becomes an inner voice that can also build on your resilience. Strong what parents. I have, Strong parents. It could be parents. It could be another teacher. It could be friends. It could be anyone in the community that sees something in you and supports you. I had one wonderful teacher. She saw, she celebrated my creativity. And, uh, and then I had my mom who was a warrior a bit. I mean, she, she was, I have some some doubts about some of the things she did, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but in in uh, in general, she's like a proper warrior, and she would she would go, listen, you have to take that and turn it into something great, and just if, if they don't want you to talk, you talk louder. Yeah. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll take a megaphone and I go into the streets and I'll do a protest and I'll do some theater and I'll be loud and all of that. And so then you did be all authentic. that. I did all that. I did all that, and. But it, it becomes exhausting when you are sort of the only one doing it. <laughs> it becomes like a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exhausting, exhausting. But also, but but that you know, if we can look at it in a, in a training uh, perspective, you know, I'm a power lifter, so that mm-hmm. exhaustion means that you are exerting yourself, and that exertion brings growth. Yeah, yeah. Right. But then you also need you also need other people around you. So 
Yeah. I don't know who said this, but if, if, if uh, you are the smartest person in the room or you're the most colorful person in the room, then you need to get out and, and explore some more. So that's when I left for London, which was a whoa, fantastic place to discover uh, eccentricity and difference and diversity. How many, years, how many years were you in London? Well, from 1999 uh, till 2016. So oh, wow. Brexit was the thing that got me back. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. So you are relatively recent being back here in Norway then. I didn't know that. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Wow. That that's a whole nother podcast episode right there. <laughs> um so you found you found a way. Um, I'm sure you, a, a lot of that was internal. You know your own strength, your own vision, uh, but a lot of it was external. You know the support mm-hmm. system that you had around you that enabled you to come out of that potentially spirit crushing mm-hmm. childhood where people were telling you that uh, you know your differentness, your otherness was a was a detriment. Uh, but you managed to come out of that and and uh, and be this smart, successful, mm. strong person that you are. And not a lot of people realize that struggle. That is a struggle for immigrants, uh, refugees, yeah. and whatnot. Uh, sadly, there's not enough of us. You know, I'm an immigrant. I'm not a refugee. But Im- there's not enough immigrants and refugees who are rising to the top. Of their fields, uh, it's almost that whole that th- that old thing that says, you know, if you're an other, you have to work twice as hard to get to the same spot as the common so- yeah. society uh, makeup of society. Uh, I believe there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, I agree. But the benefit yeah. to that is, is when one of us does make it uh, to a point of of recognition, then we <laughs> we're really doing well because all of mm-hmm. that controversy build character and all of that struggle that exertion brings a certain amount of strength and 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 and, uh, and stable is a stabilizing factor mm, yeah i think it, the, the more you can get into uh yourself the more you can be authentic and express yourself authentically then then the more people are going to relate to you and and i think it's important to create community uh to see that you're not alone with this otherness that we are many, that's really important. Well, I think we have a tendency, uh, those of us who are others, we have a tendency to collect, you know, we, we, we attract each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there is a power in networking. You know, networking is what brought me to you, to, you know, mm-hmm. to us having this conversation right now. Mm-hmm. Um, networking is a good tool. Uh, I'm one who, who who believes in it. I network mm-hmm. when I can. If I see somebody, uh, whether it's in my day-to-day public life or, or or on social media, if I see somebody who's doing something that I think is interesting, I reach out. I don't care how famous or not famous they are. I will reach out. And mm-hmm. if they reach back, then there's that. There's the benefits of networking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That's that's uh, really important. Uh, to be able to have the, the, those connections because it, be, it can be quite lonely. Are you up north? Where, where about are you? I'm in uh, Drummond actually. Now, I, oh, okay. I, I, uh, most of the time I've been, I, I came to Drummond in 2014, but before that we lived up in Finnmark and uh, mm-hmm. Nordtroms. 
So I'm a fish out of the water, out of water in a few ways <laughs> down here. Wrong mm. dialect and, and yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it can be challenging, but it's also quite interesting being close to the city, to Oslo. That also has some benefits. Uh, Absolutely. If, if you have other, yeah. Absolutely. Other. Yeah. Mm. But well, ha but having said that, <clears throat> there are certain areas of Norway that I think are more accepting of foreigners um it's not a monolith but it seems that up north from my experience uh, up north in finnmark they're a lot more accepting of 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 foreigners the, 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 i found that they were extremely curious about me as a black man mm. um oh, yeah and curi being curious you know is is there's no there's nothing offensive in that i like it mm. you know who doesn't like to talk about themselves <laughs> so they dared to question my background what i've experienced who i am as a person and i mm -hmm. found that very refreshing to oh, actually have a dialogue with them, whereas it seems to me, of course, there's a, there's tons of benefits to 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 being you know in in a city. Like I said, we're in Drummond. Um, mm. There's benefits to that, but the downside can be that people have cemented themselves in a preconceived idea about mm. what a particular group of foreigners or immigrants is like. Mm, yes. Mm. So, so, so you know, you can choose to ignore it, or you can find yourself in a larger or smaller battle against that prejudice to try and prove it wrong. Mm. So there are yeah, pluses, well, pluses and minuses to living in the city area. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah there is, and th that's another. Oh, that's a whole other subject. I was reading an, an, an article about. Uh, about the the kids that are being stigmatized here, the kids, uh, people of color in in Norway being stigmatized. While you know, like the the use of drug is just the same in the, in the rich areas as it yeah. is in the in, in the east. But yeah. who is getting all the press and who's getting all the exactly. all the all the bad rep? And it's happening here on on the on the east side. Yeah. So why why is that why is it so easy to point fingers at uh at the kids who have uh, who are the poorest kids in the in the neighborhood in the country and who don't have never been seen who never be fitted in so well i think that's the thing it is easy to do that uh it's easier to just do that to, to just run with that preconceived notion than it is to actually analyze it and do something about it to fix it so they're mm -hmm. taking the easy way out. They're just going with the preconceived notion. And, that, and mm -hmm. that's sad. That, not only is that a terrible thing for, the, for that group of, uh, of, of immigrants or foreigners here, but it's bad for society. It's bad for the greater mm -hmm. society because, again, it's kind of like what I talked about with your, with your situation as a young child. You know, uh, you had this, the, the, the family network, the social networking with your family and, and a teacher or two who mm -hmm. were able to guide you through that adversity but i wonder how many young immigrants or even older immigrants who come here with a certain amount of trauma you know if they're coming from a war-torn land or whatever i wonder how many of them get crushed i wonder how many of them just totally lose their spirit because of things like that and that's not good for this for the greater society 
It's not. So a lot of resources are lost uh, in the way of integration because also I don't really like the word integration I don't when either. it comes to anymore because it doesn't really it doesn't integrate people. It's assimilation. It's you you fit in the way that we want you to fit in, and let's forget about all the resources that you brought, all your experiences. They're not valid here. So that is oh you don't fit. That is so interesting. You say that I've taken a mm-hmm. lot of flack up through the years because I also don't use that word integration uh uh, i refuse to integrate myself because too many people define it as you said as more of an assimilation thing in other words be norwegian if you're Mm -hmm. not norwegian then you're you're not one of us and then you're not welcome you're not fitting Mm -hmm. in you know Mm -hmm. i fit in just fine but i'm still (laughs) myself you know they want you to change sometimes they want you to change the very core Mm -hmm. of who you are and I want mm-hmm. that to be my choice. If I come to some sort of epiphany or revelation that causes me to change myself, then that's because I did it, mm-hmm. not because mm-hmm. I'm struggling to integrate myself according mm-hmm. to someone else's definition of that word. Mm, absolutely. And uh, I would like to see something more, a, a, a more curiosity approach from the from the, the government and, and, and those making the, the policies. Uh, sort of, oh, okay, we have all these people here with all, all these experiences. I wonder what we can learn from them yes. instead of saying, no, you learn B1, B2, and, yeah. and then you pass this test, and then you come and work at the jobs that we don't want. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm, just, I'm generalizing now. I'm generalizing. But uh, it's, fun to, it's, it's fun to generalize every once in a while. For, for, the, for theatrical effects. You know, I'm an actress <laughs> after all. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You said you were. Uh, have you been in any. any uh, uh, yeah, productions that we may that we may know about. Uh, have I? Uh, well, last time I worked in Norway and um, in a theater production was uh, at the Nationale Sena in uh, in Belgium. Uh, I did some stuff there, and uh, and now I'm working on on two different projects. And I'm really looking forward to uh, to talking more about that later because we're in pre-production stage and it's looking very very interesting. It, so will it be we, a television production? Can you say that? Is it television or or th- stage? It's stage, but we we are working on digitalizing it because of current situation. Mm-hmm. Well, when um, you're when you're able to give details about that, let me know. I'll have you back on again. We can talk about that. <laughs> Wonderful, yes. One thing I wanted to ask you about is um, uh, you referred to yourself as a a feminist, correct? Yes. Yes. What is a feminist? People have so many ways of defining that. What is is a feminist? It's the radical idea that that women are human beings. Radical idea. That's Mm. yeah. It's a radical idea that women are human beings. That's it. That's the core of it all. Uh, and I, but I, not just a feminist, because I would say I'm an intersectional feminist. What is that? Uh, that it means that uh, in order to understand why we have the power, power structures we have, and in order to dismantle the power structures that we have, we need to understand what uh, are the intersections. What, I mean, class is one thing. Um we have gender and sexuality is another thing. Uh, being able-bodied uh, is another. You know, we, we need to look at privilege. Who are on top of the 
and how do we how do we dismantle the pyramid and create a more open and wide society that's more inclusive and and for that we need to understand who are the people that are being discriminated against who are the, the benefit the, the benefiters of this society and who are not what do you say um, to the yeah. person who says that there's no such thing as this white male privilege concept what do you say what do you, what, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you say what do you say to someone who who, who claims that there's no such thing as white male privilege oh i would <laughs> like them to uh, just go and, and experience uh oh for instance uh there was an example of of a, of a woman uh walking with her partner but he was walking a little bit behind her uh and so she got catcalled and then he he goes like hey and the, the man who's catcalling the the girl says says sorry but not to the girl <laughs> to the man to the man interesting yeah so you know what are what does it mean what are we what are we what are the women there are we just a piece of me are we a belonging are we property so i would i would invite um uh, a white man with uh, a white middle class man with with privilege to look at his own privilege this would be really wonderful how he benefits from other people being oppressed as well because in order for them to have that power even though or that privilege the the other people are need need to be oppressed otherwise that power that privilege cannot be held so yeah look into that how many people did it take to get your watch how yeah. many people who worked for that what company what did they do are, are, are the children working and which part of which part of the world who brought you food who made you your food who's who is helping you when you go to the doctors or you go to if you're in a nursing home who are the people working in that nursing home how much money are they making you know all yeah, these things yeah i'd like to see <clears throat> more white men acknowledge that there is such a thing as white male privilege because acknowledging that does not make you racist it doesn't make you sexist or misogynist uh, mm -hmm. recognizing it makes you smart <laughs> and it makes you in and, and i don't want people to say that i'm saying that if you don't recognize it you're dumb some people are quite intelligent but they don't mm -hmm. see the nuances of 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 social reality but i would like to see more white males acknowledge white male um, um, acknowledge their position and become allies yes become allies to women and people of color because they are mm. the ones these white males are I mean, they've been kicking ass for hundreds of years <laughs> mm. so take some of that ass kickery and put it to the benefit of the greater society become an ally yes um, yes I agree. Uh, you know, you, so so you have white male privilege, but mm -hmm. what about white privilege in general? You know, just imagine if mm -hmm. more white people, men and women, recognized what that is and what recognize who are beneficiaries of it, and then use yeah. that knowledge to become allies for the yeah. non-white communities of the world. Mm. And the best way to become an ally is to listen. Uh, listen to to people i was mm -hmm. just in a uh, conversation a couple of days ago about that very thing um a couple and i love discussing those kind of issues i love discussing race and societal issues and 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 things like that but in that conversation uh white person after white person started trying to tell me and a couple of other people of color how things are when it comes to racism 
I don't, and it's not that I don't want to engage them in conversation, quite the opposite, I do, because they can be great allies, but it'd be nice if sometimes those certain people listened a little bit more. Yes. But, yes. but within, along those lines, within the feminist <coughs> movement, Mm -hmm. Do you see any conflict between women of color and white women? Is there any, is there any detachment there? Is there mm -hmm. any variance in thought? Is there any difference in focus among those two demographics? Mm -hmm. Well, we have white feminism. Uh, and, and that's been, that's been something that I've been personally working with, um, with, uh, uh, with, started this group, an activist group called M Oslo, M Women in Movement in Oslo, but it's in Spanish, Mujeres en Movimiento. And it's also because we found that we didn't have a voice within the feminist uh, organizations here in Norway. Everything was very, very centered on white women and their problems, which are all valid, of course. Sure, sure. But uh, we disappeared. We are invisible. The, the rest of us were invisible. So uh, we started. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. So we started last year with uh, with the situation happening in Latin America because there are new. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, horrible things happening right now, and we wanted to find a way to to raise awareness around that. And we gathered and we did a, a flash mob and we had hundreds of people oh. that showed up. We had no idea there were so many here. Where was this? They showed up. This, this was in Oslo. This was in Oslo. Uh, in December. And they showed up and we did a we did a flash mob. So we used our bodies to, you know, we're here. This is happening to us. And we're taking back the space, public space. And we are saying it in Spanish because this is the language that we have or that our mothers have. And, and we are in this country as well. And, and we, had the, we had the translation in Norwegian so that people, other people could join. And then we had allies coming in and it was great. Uh, and then that started a whole, that started a movement uh, here. And Beautiful. we're being invited to different places to do this kind of things, uh, different kinds of artivism in a way. So we used dance of movement and, and to a performance as a way to raise awareness around these issues such as femicide and domestic violence and, um, and the situation uh, of, of women of, of color in Norway, of immigrants and, uh, and how we are invisible. That is such a beautiful thing. It needs more mm -hmm. focus. That invisibility, that curtain of invisibility just needs to be lifted. I, mm -hmm. I miss that discussion here in Norway. Yeah, I really absolutely. do. I really mm -hmm. do. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is that, mm, I'm just thinking about that. The, the, the uh, part of that conversation uh, is we get silence when, when we hear, oh, well, I don't, I don't see color. <laughs> oh, stop it. Yeah. Um, I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with seeing color. The problem is, is when you see color and then you react negatively to it. Exactly. See, exactly. saying you don't see color is, I mean, you see a, you, you see a traffic light, do you not? You see the red, <laughs> yellow, and green. Don't tell, yeah. <laughs> don't, tell, don't tell me you don't see color, you know? <laughs> well, yes, but that's a way to shut down the conversation. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it's so a, yeah, it's a deflecting. A yeah, it's a, oh, oh yeah. There's, there's some people around here are very good at deflecting, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, deflecting so that the, the conversation mm -hmm. stops. Mm -hmm. But, 
it, it demands an it it demands um, an intelligent mind. It demands an informed mind to to mm-hmm. be able to debate these things because on the other side, these deflectors, these deniers, they're doing their research. They have their dogma. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have their yeah literature. And it's uncomfortable. And it's going back to what we were talking about earlier about the, the stories that we carry and why therapy is important and all of that. And, and about knowing yourself, because once once you turn the situation around and, go, and you look into yourself and go, how do I benefit from this privilege or how do I benefit from deflecting this conversation because deflection is a is a defense mechanism i'm yeah. trying to defend myself from something yeah. if i start looking inwards and looking at all the things that uh that i'm benefiting from and does it mean i'm an oppressor i mean you start questioning yourself and that's terrifying it's yeah. terrifying it to is. go and look within it is yeah we are we're kind of scary on the inside sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's easy to project into others. So it's easy to blame other people. Yeah. The shame, when you sit with shame and, and you don't deal with shame, what you do is that you blame. Yeah. There's a song title mm. in there, Shame, Blame. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I want to talk about before we go, I have about 15 mm. minutes and, I, and then I have to run, but um, mm-hmm. you had a very interesting experience Um it's kind of stupid that I didn't ask you about this earlier in this conversation uh, because I, I would think it was a very important occurrence in your life. When you were five years old, you mm-hmm. were, um, just tell us about the incident when you were five and you had to go into the hospital. Yes. Yeah, so I, I had, um, I don't know what it's called in English. It's a uh, mascoiditis, uh, like acute uh, uh, problem with my ear. And I got that infection and I was only going to take the tonsils out. And then it turned into a horrible, horrible infection oh, wow. uh, while I was being operated. And my my doctor, my surgeon, was uh, had a nickname, and it was the the butcher. So oh. you know, not very comforting. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah. So I I uh, I went into a coma, and I, I basically I was declared dead. Just like Five years coma. old. Yeah, I was five years old. She died, but I have a I have a memory, a very clear memory, that I'm sort of I'm floating over my body and I'm looking at the door, and at the door there's a woman standing looking at me with so much love, so much love in her eyes and going and going, you know, honey, don't worry, you know, things you will get better, things will get better, and I realized later that that woman was me. It was an adult version of me. So it's sort of super meta experience and, and, and kind of a spiritual experience and, and in a death experience, near death experience. Coming back cl- classic out of body near death experience. Yeah. 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 And then you throw in an element of the time space continuum in that the woman that you saw was you as an adult. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, so, so when you woke up from this coma, did you immediately have a clear uh, memory of of that occurrence, or is this something that came to you later? This memory, no, I I had the memory clear when I woke up, wow. and I and I had it with me all along. I just didn't know it was me. She looked like me, but I couldn't understand it was me. I it was see. later on. It was later on that I I could put it together. That was me. That was me. Because later I had dreams where I would go to that hospital and I'd be standing in front of that of me as a child, telling her that I'd be okay. So it's like, and I put those two things together. I was like, yes, that was me. Having had um, 
a near death or you actually died you were actually mm. they actually had to revive you correct yeah yes now, now having had that experience what does that do to you or for you when it comes to your own mortality you know death you know what does that do uh, about your acknowledgement of death your fear or lack of fear of death it makes me want to live and live uh, <laughs> it makes me want to live a really full life uh, and it might not be the life that everyone else wants for me um, uh, I know that you know the, my mother is very traditional so she would have wanted me to have like the traditional life and and I am more of a freedom loving kind of person and and because I think that when when I die the day that I die I wanna I wanna think wow I had a really exciting life I did all of the things that I wanted to do. I explored with, I explored with stand up. I explored with theater. I explored with all these. I lived. I really yeah. had a well lived life. That's how I want to die. Not how you know how many houses I bought or how many yeah. cars I've yeah. got. And that's you know for some of the people that's what they want. But for me, that's not it. So it made me it made me think about the quality of life that I want. Wow, and that focus on quality of life is something that you've carried with you all those years there's not a lot of well i don't know when did you when did you first act you, you had this experience as a five-year-old but when did you start mm -hmm. applying it to your everyday life in other words when did you come to understand that this was a meaningful occurrence that can help you through life you didn't have that well, idea right away as a five-year-old. No, no, I couldn't. I just wanted to be a, I just, I was hungry, actually. When I first woke up, I was like, ah, oh, I need food. <laughs> because uh, <laughs> because you, you, seemed, you seemed to be a very focused and driven woman. At the same time as you have your feet on the ground and you're based, you're, you're reality-based, but you seem mm -hmm. to be very focused and, and driven in what you do. Mm -hmm. When did that focus and drive start? Was there something that happened specifically? Focus and drive. I think I've always had that. It's, okay. it's, it's part of my personality. I get an idea and then I, I want to go for it and I, I really believe in it. And then, and then, and when I'm done, I'm done with it. And then I move on to the next big idea. And I, and that, it, that's what makes my, my life so much fun sometimes. Mm. Uh, but it's, it can also be quite frustrating too. Frustrating oh. for people around me because they're like, "Oh, why well, can't you just stay mm. in one place?" And yeah. I'm like, "No, but but look at this. This is <laughs> look at this experience." <laughs> well, if they're smart, they'll just jump on board, and I'll share that experience with you. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Lexi, I I I don't know how to put it into words, but I have just really enjoyed, and this has happened quick. I was aware mm -hmm. of you as a person and what mm -hmm. you're doing. It was just a couple, three days ago, mm -hmm. and here mm -hmm. we are talking already, but I want this to be the beginning of, you know, the networking has been done. Now we've been in yeah. contact and let's stay in contact. <laughs> Wonderful. I love that. I really enjoyed this. You know, I want to ask you to do something for me. Now, I used mm -hmm. to be, I used to be fluent in Spanish. Mm-hmm. I used it daily uh, in my work back home in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, but since I've learned Norwegian, I've forgotten most of my mm -hmm. Spanish. But you said a phrase or two earlier in Spanish, and it reminded me of the beauty of that mm -hmm. language. For my own enjoyment, and maybe for a little <laughs> bit of comedic, comedic uh, uh, re comedy relief here, can you say in Spanish, oh my gosh, John, you're such a beautiful person, and I'm glad to know you. <laughs> say that in Spanish. 
Ay, Dios mío, John, eres una persona maravillosa y qué, qué placer poder conocerte. Oh, that's just beautiful. Say, say it next time with meaning, though. <laughs> See, now that you've said it, now I have to earn that. <laughs> now I have to earn that. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, Lexi. Oh my gosh, I, I, I can bear, I have bad um, bad uh, pixels on this computer, but you're probably mm. blushing a little bit right now. I mean. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> But Lexi, I'm so glad to, to have uh, started to get to know you. I think this is a very interesting conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm going to be watching you going forward. You, you are just a bundle of positivity. Uh, you've obviously done the right thing in your life, and I like seeing that you're trying to help others. You are helping others do the right thing and enhance their lives. That's just a beautiful thing. We need more of that in this world. Thank you very much. And thank you for creating this platform. Uh, it's really important to reach out to people and, uh, and connect. So I'm, I'm super grateful. Well, I'm grateful too. And thank you for that acknowledgement. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to have some fun. I'm trying to help myself. I'm trying to help mm -hmm. others. And that's what you mm -hmm. do as well. That's why we connected. Yeah. We're kind of doing the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, we are. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody, for listening mm -hmm. to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with uh, your host, John Allen and Lexi Corin. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everybody. I'm coming home. Oh, I'm coming home. I'm, yes, I am. Yes, I'm coming home. I'm coming home, yes I am, my Lord, oh my Lord, Lord, I'm coming home.